Welcome the founder and host of BuddyCast, Nick Sorensen. Happy BuddyCast Day, buddies. It's time for another episode of BuddyCast. But this isn't just any BuddyCast. This is the buddy of honor, our buddy, Dr. Francois Clemens. How are you doing today, Dr. Clemens? Well, I am just fine, and that is quite an introduction. You make me want to yell, bravo, bravo. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That was uh, That's our theme song, BuddyCast. It was written locally by a local musician, Tommy Link. We wanted I wanted this show to be as local as possible, especially with the pandemic in 2020 taking its peak. You know, local entertainers really took a hit, really yes. took something. So I wanted to support them in any way I could. So I said, I want my theme song to be something to let my guests know that this is going to be a fun, loving show. That's just and give them a warm welcome, you know. So. Local artist is uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, Erie. Yep. Erie, Pennsylvania. Yep. Not that far. So, nope. so Dr. Clemens, I got to start by asking what what inspired you to be to look into acting? I looked at that when you uh, you and I had a chance to uh, to send some emails earlier, mm-hmm. and it's a very interesting question because it's not phrased right, and I don't mm-hmm. uh, know if I have a better way of phrasing it except to say, when did you realize that you were an actor? Mm-hmm. I didn't go into acting. I yes. was always able to do little scenes when I was a child. I'd pretend I was on stage, and I'd say, I'm the doctor or I'm the preacher, or I'm the choir director. I've been doing that as long as I can remember. And mm. in my opinion, I, when I got much, much older and I look back, that I was already doing what I do now. I used to have a pretend microphone in those days, you know, with a cord, and I'd pretend I was interviewing somebody and they were answering questions. I don't think they were very important questions, but I do feel that I've been doing it since I was nine, 10 years old. Uh, Specifically, I was a singer by the time I was six years old in church. That's when I knew some of the songs and some of the words. But in terms of uh, actually thinking of it in terms of theater or the way you present yourself to the world, that came a little bit later. But it also came from in church where they encouraged me to sing. And my first literature were American Negro spirituals. So I started out singing the songs that my mother and my cousins, my aunts and uncles, they would all, we were all going to basically the same church. And then we would sing these songs around the house. Uh, There wasn't nearly as much entertainment, we would call entertainment uh, television or console, kids play games as we do, as we have now. So we used to sing songs together, we would harmonize, and in my mind, I always knew how to harmonize a song. Don't ask me where it came from, but 
I just knew, and uh, first of all, as a boy, I had a uh, an alto uh, range. I did not have the high, high boy soprano range. And that proved to be a challenge for me sometimes because in school, the teacher would say, oh, this is for a soprano or this. And they would give that solo to a girl or to a boy who had the high notes. And I thought, well, how come I can't sing that? Why can't I? And so uh, that was a period of time that I went through. And I know that I started harmonizing. And my teacher said, oh, that sounds great. Where'd you learn that? So I, I don't know. I just started singing something so I could be a part of what was going on. Anyway, to make a long story short, I went from boy soprano to eighth grade to tenor. I never dropped down to bass or baritone like many of my peers were getting deep voices. They were very proud. They were showing it off. And my voice only changed a couple of notes from being a boy alto to being a man tenor. So all through junior high school and then high school, I sang. And I was always encouraged to sing. Uh, the, the teachers were very, very wise and astute in choosing songs and things for me to do that kept my interest. That is a beautiful, beautiful story. Can I ask you real quick, could we have a small demonstration of your singing, if you would be willing? <laughs> yes, of course you can. Uh, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, low sweet chariot, Coming for to carry me home. Now I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. Yeah, a big band of angels were coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. Whoa, swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Yeah, swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was beautiful. And I just got a message from my fiance saying she wants to hire you for our wedding. Oh my goodness. Well, I'd be very happy to come to Pennsylvania to sing a wedding. Oh, we'd be honored to have you. Thank now, you. Thank you. Now, Dr. Clemens, if I'm not mistaken, I see a very iconic photo behind you of Mr. Rogers and yourself as Officer Clemens. For our buddies who maybe don't know the story out there, how did the role of Officer Clemens come to be for you? Well, I went on the program singing American Negro Spirituals. And mm -hmm. I did uh, one, two, three, four shows. And uh, Fred got in touch with me and said, I've already heard positive feedback from your singing, like Swing Low Sweet Chariot. And he said, would you like to come back on our program? And I said, yes, I would love to. Um, because, you know, I was a, a, I was earning my master's degree at Carnegie Mellon, but I needed money to live, even though uh, it's not nearly as expensive as it is today. 
to go to school, but I didn't have parents or grandparents who had money to put me through grad school. And something I was, my, my teachers at Oberlin insisted that I go to grad school to buy time. They said, you need more time for your voice to mature. So I went to Pittsburgh. I got a job at um, Third Presbyterian Church. And Fred was a member of the congregation. And I did a, a Good Friday service uh, just before Easter. And he heard it. And he came up to me. And he and I had a very, very serious conversation, which surprised me because he was the last person in the, a huge line of people that lined up. And so he invited me to be on the program. After I'd been on the program, he called me in and said, I'd like to have you do something regularly. I think you would be such an asset here uh, on, on in our neighborhood. And I said, well, I'll be glad to, Mr. Rogers. Uh, I thought I was gonna continue as a singer, as a guest. And he said, how about if we create a role for you? I said, I hadn't thought of it. And he said, I'm thinking of officer, a police officer. Well, it's like a huge boulder dropped on the conversation. I was in such shock. I said, a policeman? First of all, I, I always think of myself as a professional in terms of a, a professor in college or uh, an airline pilot, something, uh, uh, a doctor, but I never thought of myself as a policeman particularly one who walks the beat and, you know, goes to the office and comes home, that kind of, I thought, what? Well, and plus, you know, the policemen have a terrible reputation in the ghetto. And I was raised in the ghetto. I saw things that no young person should see, to be honest. I've gotten past a lot of that, but I remember it very well. And so when Fred mentioned becoming hypothetically Officer Clemens, I thought, no, I can't, I can't do that. Um, and he was very patient and he talked to me about it. He said, why don't you think about it? And he said, what I think of as a policeman is a, a helper. Helper was the magic word. I said, you do? He said, yes. You would go around the neighborhood uh, with Queen Sarah or King Friday or Lady Aberlin, someone, and you would be helping and you would be thought of in situations that necessitated or wanted a helper. Well, I did go home. I did think. I did con uh, confer with my voice teacher about it. And everyone said, oh, my goodness, what a great opportunity. You have to say yes. And so my voice teacher, Lee Cass, and I talked about it. And he said, think of it as you're going on stage to do a role in an opera of La Boheme or La Traviata or Madame Butterfly, something. But you sing the role, and when you finish, you take off your outfit, you put on your clothes, and you go home. And he said, try thinking of it that way. When you're in the, the neighborhood with Fred Rogers, you can be Officer Clemens. But then you have the ability and the right to, to go home as Francois Clemens. Well, first of all, uh, that worked for, for the time being, but he was very, very wrong. And I say that because people seem to like Officer Clemens right from the start. And they liked my singing. Uh, many of them were wise enough and perceptive enough to see that I was having a friendship with Fred Rogers, a black man having a friendship with this eminent educator and television personality.
that he genuinely admired me. And frankly, almost all of the uh, years I was with him, he primarily started out as a fan who came to hear me sing, who encouraged me to sing, a mentor who gave me advice, sometimes asked for it, sometimes not asked for it, until eventually he took on the role of surrogate father. And that was a very, very beneficial, healthy, up inspiring relationship for me. I had never had a relationship like that with a man. I had, had a closeness, but here was like my grandfather whom I've been taken away from. And here was Fred and he was behaving like I used to think of my grandfather. And, and I just want to say this. Uh, I think that a lot of people read books and stuff about early childhood education, but they never really, in my opinion, translate the fact that here was this great man who loved a black fellow and who the, the things that I influenced in Fred's life and then obviously the things that he influenced in my life. There were many things about the ghetto that my beloved surrogate father did not know. He had never experienced going to bed hungry, not having enough clothes to wear, poverty, uh, abuse from parents, um, and for me, struggling with being gay, openly gay, wanting to be openly gay. And none of those things I just named for you was a personal experience that he had had. And there I was in the inner circle, struggling with all of it. And he helped me. Uh, primarily, something which I have shared with some of my very close buddies now, Fred was a great listener. I can't tell you how healing it was when he, I knew he was listening and he was thoughtful. He would say, well, I'll think about that, France, or thank you for sharing that with me, France. He, did, he wasn't telling me how to feel or that I had, I had messed up or blundered in some way. He said, well, I'm your friend regardless, I, and I can listen to whatever it is. Always feel like you can. He told me that. Always feel you can call me. I didn't have anybody that I felt I could always call. Nobody. And he made me aware that it wasn't just on a superficial level, that after a while, it was a very deep commitment. And uh, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th, 1968, we had already started a friendship, but he literally came to my apartment, which was right there in the ghetto in Pittsburgh. And he said, I want you to come with me, Francois. I said, what? Yes, we're not sure that it's safe for you here. And we want you to be safe. So please throw a couple things in a suitcase. You can always come back in a couple of days, but you need to be with people who love you and who will take care of you. I was young, 23 years old, 20, almost 24. And I had never had that kind of deep care. And I went home with him and the rest, so to speak, you know, is history because I stayed there quite frequently and uh, I got to know the people in the office in Pittsburgh and the other actors and actresses. Um, it opened up a whole new world for me. And my, with the help of my voice teacher, I began to understand what a golden nugget <laughs> I had been given. And uh, 
it always amazes me over the 50 years how much people love Officer Clemens. Mm -hmm. I I was not prepared. Uh, there were other wonderful uh, actors and actresses on the show. You've already mentioned uh, David Newell, and I saw part of the interview with him, and he was there from the beginning, and he helped me a great, great deal. Mm -hmm. uh, he really kind of said, well, I can help you with this, Francois, and I can help you with that. And he was an incredible resource, especially in those early years. I always felt I could call him. And then Lady Aberlin also, she was someone with whom I could articulate my uh, kinds of challenges and what it meant for me to be doing this program. Because the more and more I did it, the more I realized that people at Carnegie Mellon, at Pitt, University of Pittsburgh, all of those people, they wanted to be on, the, on that show. And there I was. And so there's that, that with some of my peers, they, they made it feel like, well, why did he choose you? What do you have uh, to offer? They, they wanted to be the policeman or to have a guest shot on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, not just in, um, uh, in Pittsburgh, even the great conductor, um, Lauren Mazel, who conducted the Porgy and Bess, where I won a, uh, an, a, gra a Grammy, all of us did, the whole production of Porgy and Bess. He came to me and said, how can you get me on that program? And I said, you're Maestro um, uh, uh, Mizell. Just call him up <laughs> and tell him you want to come on the program. Anyway, there were lots of people. Uh, my peers and friends said, can you get me on the show? Can you get me on the show? Can you get me on the show? And I had a couple of things that where something worked out. But generally speaking, that was not who I was. And it wasn't who the, the neighborhood. Fred had a way of choosing people that had meaning and substance to him. I think he had every right to uh, bring those people into his world. And so I did not feel that I had to bring every Tom Henry and say, here, meet Fred Rogers. Maybe he'll take you on the show. But I became aware, and especially after I moved to New York, and he was so kind. He said, oh, you must come back to visit, Francois. I had never had anybody say that to me either. I thought, once you're gone, you're out of sight. It's all over. But he called me on a fairly regular basis. And I have to tell you, it happened so much that even when I was in my 30s and I was earning a very good living, I used to call him collect. <laughs> I called him at Joanne. And they never, ever said, no, we don't accept charges. They said, okay, well, hold on just a minute. Joanne would say, I know you want to talk to Fred. And sometimes he wasn't there. And she said, well, Fred's not here. You have to talk to me. And I did. I, I'm not telling you the whole truth how often I did that. Because mm -hmm. I couldn't call home or talk to my mother or dad in the same way that I could talk to Fred. So one day I was talking to him on the phone. I said, Fred, you know. I started the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble. He was a big help to me. And we're traveling all over the country and we're singing. We're having much success. And I'm making quite a bit of money. So much that I can put some in the savings and all that. And I said, why am I still calling you collect? <laughs> the phone was so silent. He said, well, friends, Joanna and I talked about it. And we decided that you could call us collect just as long as you needed to. And when you didn't need to, to do that, 
you will tell us. And so I said, I'm, I'm not going to call you collect anymore because I can afford it. And I, I couldn't, I was full of so much gratitude for those kinds of gestures on his part. And he's, I say, why? Once in a while I asked him, Fred, why are you like this? Why do you treat me this way? And you know what he used to say to me? That's what daddies do. Wow. I'm telling you, it makes me almost cry because yeah. if the if humanity, if people here treated one another the way daddies treat their children or mothers treat their children, we wouldn't have some of the problems that we have. Uh, you're absolutely right. And the one scene that, you're, that your whole conversation is bringing me to in my head is from the documentary, you know, that one scene that I'm always impacted by you by is when you heard him say to you, you know, um, I love you just the way you are. And you pull him aside and you're like, were you talking to me? Yeah. And he's like, and I'll never forget what you said. He said, Francois, I've been talking to you for two years now. And today you heard me. How much did that mean to you? Well, it changed my life. I felt this, this impact. It was such a fantastic impact. The, the, um, the kind of all enveloping love that he said, I've been talking to you for two years, but you heard me today. And I just fell into his arms crying because it was such a, a, a circumstance of acceptance, total acceptance, no judgment, no, you know, do this, do that, go. It was, I love you just the way you are. And so it changed my, my life. Uh, because I knew then that I had experienced unconditional love from someone. And, uh, you know, in my adult life, obviously, if my great, if my grandfather Saul had lived, I think I would have had that experience again as I grew up. But it was cut, I was cut away from that. And we moved to Youngstown, Ohio. So I, it didn't come back into my life until Fred uttered those words to me. And I knew without any doubt that he meant it. Mm. Mm. And one of the main reasons I wrote the book, Officer Clemens, is because none of the other authors, to the best of my knowledge, they're all white. And none of them really understand all of who Fred was. They don't, um, uh, they don't really take the time to either come and interview me or to talk about the films that we did and the significance to understand that Fred was not just a white man. He was a deep spiritual soul, and he uh, drew to him all kinds of people, Asian, Korean, uh, Native American, Spanish, Blacks. Everybody was drawn into that circle, and I don't see that a lot of times in his the, the books written about him. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't touch me, and they don't touch him. Mm. Now... I wanted to ask you one thing. One, you mentioned a lot of kindness with Mr. Rogers. You mentioned how he treated you. One way he portrayed that on air is it's sitting literally right behind you. The iconic <laughs> pool scene. The iconic pool scene. How much did that scene mean to you today as you reflect back on it? You know? Well, it's a, uh, it's a home run. I hit the ball out of the park. Mr. Rogers hit the ball out of the park. As I said, when he, Dr. King was assassinated, 
and Fred came and picked me up and took me to his house. We did a lot of talking, and I was very, very angry. I was hurt. Uh, I love Dr. King. Dr. King and Fred are the two saints that I've known in this lifetime. And to murder this man was just uh, so abhorrent, I couldn't think about it well. And I, I brought my pain to Fred, and he said, well, there must be something that we can do about this, friends. And as life would have it, there were people who did not want black people to swim in the municipal pools, even in Pittsburgh and in Youngstown and in uh, Columbus and Cincinnati and Toledo. And all those cities were racist. They did not want black people. I, I didn't mention Memphis and Nashville and Atlanta and all of those cities. And I said to him, Fred, that's ridiculous. Number one, those are municipal pools, which means black people's taxes are also supporting that pool. Why can't we go? And then they were pouring chemicals and dust that hurt the kid's skin. That hurt me so much that they would do that to young people, young kids who are just running and laughing and jumping in the water. And to do something so harmful. So I, I laid that on his lap. And this is what he came up with. He said, everyone does not feel that way, friends. I don't feel that way. And so he said, I'll, I'll think about it. I'll be back in touch. Sure enough, he sent me a script. When he sent me the script, I sat down and read it and said, what? What? Where? Where's the, <laughs> where's the big confrontation, the big fight, the guns or something? And he said, well, this is one way to handle it. People will do it differently, but this is one way. So I said, okay, I'm going to see. I, I reserved judgment. And when we started going through that scene, something happened. And that something had to do with the fact that he was embracing me again in a spiritual sense, helping me to grow and to understand not only how bad it was and to other children, but how deep I was. I Got a, got a much deeper understanding about our humanity. I sort of, I began to feel a partnership with Fred, that we were doing something together and that I was not there alone saying, don't treat black people this way or don't treat black people that way. And he was saying, unconditional love. Here it is. Don't hold back. Let them have it because that's one thing they cannot resist. And in my opinion, he might have been a Presbyterian minister, but he was giving unconditional love. And we used to walk around together in the studio and to different places. We would talk about the Bible. He loved to discuss the, the Bible. And so he loved to discuss the prodigal son, the role of Peter. Uh, Elijah went to heaven, you know, without, uh, they never knew what happened, those kinds of things. And one of the ones was, in the upper room of this picture where Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to wash your feet. And we talked about the significance in those ancient cultures of washing somebody's dirty, sandy feet, stinking. And, you know, and he said, this is uh, how the great prophet speaks about service. We're here to serve. And if you're not serving, you are not following either Fred Rogers 
of the great Christ consciousness. It taught us service first. Where are the poor? Where are the hungry? Where are the naked? Where are the lonely? Where is the widow? Go on and on. That's who you're supposed to address your attention to. When the rich man came to him and said, I've done all that. How do I get into heaven? And he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and give it to the hungry and the lonely and then come back and you can be my disciple. And that wealthy man said, <laughs> I'm not selling all of my stuff. Or you must be joking. And then in the Bible, it says, Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Now, that's been interpreted a million different ways. But the basic idea was money can keep us sometimes from having the graces and the blessings that come down to us from heaven or up from us. We carry such tremendous love and ability, but we 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 uh, we give we pinch it away. We give a little bit here, a little bit there here. You have to open up in order to receive and in order to give. You must be open to it. And the one thing that I work on for myself, because believe it or not, I work on myself too, is judgment. It's important not to judge. And by that, I don't mean you can't perceive or understand what's going on. But Fred helped me to understand how you separate the person from what they've done. And I, too, went to the prison with him in Pittsburgh. And we talked to some of the prisoners. Quite frankly, I did a lot of listening because I was afraid when I was in uh, prison. Ha having those doors closed behind me was quite a shocking experience. And not only that, but there was a young man, I say young man, we were both around the same age, in jail, <clears throat> who had killed his girlfriend. And the idea that I was with someone who had killed his girlfriend was, um, it was hard for me to, uh, to adjust to. I sat there and he was a redhead, kind of not quite six feet tall, very handsome in my opinion. What on earth, why did he kill her? Why did he have to kill her? And I didn't understand the in, the intense jealousy and the rage that he felt. And to be honest, he was changing. He understood this human violation of another person's life. And he was trying to find a way, so to speak, to come back. And Fred Rogers was embracing that effort. He was letting him know, we care about you. We, we want you to, to grow and to change because it's not easy in jail. You, you know, you've heard many stories, I'm sure, as I have, about some of the abusive things and the racial, racial things and sexual things. So being in prison is not easy. But this young man was desperately trying to get a hold of his deeper self. And that was one. I could name some other instances. But so uh, I not only went to prisons with Fred, we went to hospitals. And we went to on tour. He was down in Louisville for the Kentucky Derby. He was uh, the the head guy and and with Muhammad Ali, whom I admired a great deal. And uh, you know, and most of the time, David Newell was with us. Uh, I'm not quite sure all that he talked about. I know it's probably a hundred percent true. He has a phenomenal memory. Mm -hmm. and, oh, well, he does, and I, yes. I rely on him for a lot of things. But 
in terms of specifically how Fred was dealing with the race issue, I'm the authority, not David. Yes. Yes. There are lessons that you can teach. There are lessons that David can teach. There are lessons that I'm asking Mr. McFeely about. There are lessons I'm asking Officer Clemens about. That's yeah, we're mm-hmm. very different. Mm-hmm. You are. But do you guys still keep in touch today or do you still? Well, the answer, to, first of all, is yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are issues that we, we both talk about. But I always generally reach out to him. I'm the extrovert. And he's a kind of dizzy, uh, you know, he's, he's into different things, this, into this, into that. And I focus more. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'd say, David, so-and-so, so-and-so, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. And I love that I can leave messages on his answer machine if he's not there. I've got a reputation for leaving long messages. And so when I call, sometimes, sometimes I sing. Mm-hmm. I sing a cappella. And sometimes it's spontaneous. I sing to, to the answer machine. And I know I had friends in New York say, stop calling me and talking to that, my machine. Yeah, I have you used up all of my minutes, or all of my time. And so I, I got into the habit of doing that. And I dumped on David. I sang a number of times. But, you know, he has a very good, uh, uh, char- his inner character is very gentle. And uh, <laughs> sometimes I try to bully him to do some things. And he was he would just stand firm, but he was he was never he never lashed out or anger or anything like that. But and I stayed with him a couple of times. I used to come to Pittsburgh and stay at his house because we we really loved movies. I don't know if he talked to you about that. No, he hasn't. He hasn't. Well, ask him to tell you about his collection of old movies from the um, 40s and 50s. I'm trying to think. He loved Carol Burnett. Uh, who didn't? Mm-hmm. And he he loved a lot of sitcoms on television and all that. And he collected a lot of Hollywood movies. And that's actually where I began to pay attention to some of them because the specific reason I didn't like those ancient movies was there were no black people. And if there were, they were teaching Shirley Temple how to dance or they were shining somebody's shoes. And I just, I didn't want, I didn't need anything else to do with it. So mm-hmm. I would nudge him to go watch Carmen Jones, which has a black cast. Or go watch um, uh, Torg and Bess. <laughs> and I don't know if he, you're going to ever talk to him again, but he does a wonderful imitation of me singing. <laughs> oh, I have to. I have to get, you know what we have to do? We have to get, we have to get like a panel and have both of you on the show. Just yes, <laughs> you should. But if we ever do it together, which I would be very happy, I want to be in the same room with David. Because I'm sure he's going to say something and I'm going to hit him. (laughs) You can't do that on these Zoom sessions. But he has a wonderful sense of humor and a sense of history. And I often find that uh, the things that he has to say are are right on. He remembers. Mm -hmm. He does. He He told some great stories on his time on the show. He told about like how he met his wife on the show. She was the Purple Panda. Yeah, just... I used to tease him about her. Oh, uh, I want to hear this. I want to hear this. Ask him. No, I, I just thought she was a wonderful, beautiful woman who uh, was so loving and so sweet in the office. She was upstairs. And I teased him that he was molesting her. He was terrorizing her by calling her and making uh, appointments to have a date. And, you know, you're not supposed to date people in the same office and stuff. So their relationship was secret for a little while. 
And then finally they announced that she was going to leave and he was going to stay. And I said, you've driven her away. It's you. You're the reason. I, you know, but I was always teasing because I adored her and I adored him. But mm -hmm. I said, you know, if you would leave her alone, she could still be here with us. And with me, I miss her. Uh, <laughs> it, was, so it, was, it was all junk, but I loved yeah. uh, teasing him. <clears throat> it was all the buddy type of teasing. It was all the type, like that, that friendship teasing where like, you know, that saying where if you trip, a good friend will pick you up. A best friend will say, walk much. You know, it was like that, you know? <laughs> well, we had a lot of fun. Oh, you guys sound like it. And what I love, just from hearing your stories alone, it sounds like the cast wasn't just cast members or coworkers where it was all professional, you know, like, hey, after the end of the day, you go your way, Mr. McFeely goes his way, and you'll see each other on Tuesday for the next filming or something it sounded like i said you have that family bond you have what you described with fred earlier you have that family bond that you can go to each other for any time you can go to mr you can go to david and ask him hey i'm trying to remember this this yeah. day or this instance can yep. you help me draw back something and he's on it yeah you were here i was here Here's what happened, you know. Here's well, he was there doing a lot of the uh, things that happened to me uh, that related to the program because he was not only Mr. McFeely, he was the main uh, promotional guy mm -hmm. and advertising and, and issues that Fred would deal with later on. David uh, helped to set up the parameters of some of those things. And so he was a, a great person to stay in touch with. Also, um, he was... Uh, very caring about what was happening in Pittsburgh. I think he was born in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. So he always gave the impression how much he cared for the city and things that were happening in Pittsburgh. David basically was on top of it. Now he he truly is. Now, Dr. Clements, I wanted to go back to a question I had from earlier. You talked about all the lessons that Fred has taught you through just his example alone. I want to ask what Officer Clemens taught you personally. Well, it's very interesting. Um, Officer Clemens helped me to bring out my patience. My, uh, as I said, everyone deserves a second chance. And I, I began to um, reevaluate how I looked at people and what I considered important and what I considered less important. Uh, and some of that had to do with the fact that I was aware of how much affection people genuinely had for me and for Officer Clemens. So I would say, wow, that's nice. That's a good feeling. I, and it opened me up to accept what was coming to Officer Clemens also to me. And I began to realize that a lot of people who I might not have had a relationship with or run into in my lifetime, I was meeting them and I was having a good positive relationship with them because of Officer Clemens or what they thought Officer Clemens was. I wasn't out to prove them wrong or anything. I just simply embraced a fuller uh, idea of what I was able to, to offer. For example, some people told me they became a black police officer because of me. Well, I'll be darned. That's the last thing <laughs> I was thinking, that I would influence someone to become a police officer, particularly a black man. But I did, and they told several told me. Uh, the other thing is, I had people say to me, um, "Oh, you're such a wonderful singer. 
I love it when Officer Clemens sings this or sings that song. And they would say, I, I was first introduced to classical music listening to you. Really? I said, yes. And I loved classical music, they would say, and they would tell me what some of their favorite opera operas were or song literature, something. And mostly uh, uh, vocal music. I do like instrumental music, but not like I like vocal music or choral music. And I also introduced a lot of people to American Negro spirituals, which was my specialty and was the reason that I had originally met Fred and spent time with him. I was always singing to him. He would say to me, just like you said earlier, sing a song, Francois, how are you feeling today? I said, fine, do you feel like singing something for, for me? And I would sing spontaneously. And also for Joanne, his mm -hmm. wife was just as wonderful. You know, she was a musician, of course. And so they had a piano they called the Becky, the Beckstein. And she used to say, come on over sometime and practice on the Becky, on the, on the piano. And I did. And, you know, I got to know her better. She was not a good accompanist, but she was a damn good musician, if you know what I mean. Because mm -hmm. she was a uh, pianist duo, duo with her and her friend Janine. They did uh, duets all over the place. But when it came to accompanying me, she was a little too rigid at, and trying to be accurate, you know, and playing the right notes. And my work involves a certain level of uh, improvisation. Mm -hmm. And so that was, it wasn't always a good fit, but it was a lot of fun. Oh, by the way, she was a great storyteller. You think that David and I tell stories. Mm -hmm. Joanne, can I have you laughing? She was the great personality. Fred's humor was very dry. Very, very dry humor. But mm -hmm. her humor sometimes was bawdy. It was, uh, you know, thigh-slapping funny. Yes. I remember um, you've, you, have you seen the, you probably have seen this, the movie that they just released on Fred Rogers, The, the Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, um, you know, where they have Tom Hanks playing him. I want to ask, first off, what your opinion is on that movie. <laughs> Well, it's okay. It's a Hollywood yeah. movie. Yeah. You know, there was a time they used to do lots and lots and lots of B-movies. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that being a good B-movie. It's exactly. not a great movie, and I'm just saying it. It's not. Yeah. And the reason it's not is that it's really not about Fred Rogers. It's about that other wonderful gentleman who was the, um, the reporter mm -hmm. and the issues that he confronted and dealt with in his life. The other movie I like, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor?, and the reason I like it so much, it's a documentary, mm -hmm. but it it cuts right to the core. Yes. Of, uh, this this sine qua non, this thing you can't name, you don't see about Fred. And so I really think that that's the one. Mm -hmm. And I've watched it. You know, I traveled around the country when they premiered the movie. And so. Uh, I was in theaters everywhere, and I mean San Francisco, Los Angeles, Florida, certainly New York, Pittsburgh, you name it. And everywhere I went, I watched people watching that film. And it was about 40 minutes, 35, 40 minutes into the film, I began to hear the sniffles and began to look around the, the, the theater and see people sometimes just crying, heavy, serious. They loved him so much. They miss him so much. And I'm not kidding when I tell you I've had two experiences in life where I knew 
that I was in the presence of genius. One was with Dr. King when I was at Oberlin, and the other one was with Fred Rogers. I knew that there was something about the man. There's a spiritual, a, a gospel song about the man. He walks like Jesus. He talks like Jesus. And I don't mean to imply that I think Fred is Jesus, but I do think he had a profound spiritual spirituality. Well, that movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor, took a big hug around who he really is. I advise everyone to go see it. If they tell me they've already seen it, I say, go see it again. It's worth it. You know it. what I'm doing tonight? <laughs> you are. Yes. Well, I've watched it a lot, and I have to tell you, uh, I have friends over here to my house, and we're relaxed uh, because of the pandemic. It's usually only one or two now. I used to have my entire uh, Middlebury College class come over, but now it's just one or two or three people at the most. And um, we we have watched that film a couple of times. And even then, it touches all of us very, very deeply. So Beautiful. And you mentioned it, you just mentioned it. Fred wasn't, you know, that documentary wasn't afraid to cut into the deep stuff. I have a question that's kind of cutting into the deep stuff today that my mom right here wants to ask too. Um, what are your thoughts on violence taking place in communities today? We talked a little bit about this off air and it goes into my question. You know, Fred is all about kindness, kindness, kindness. And it seems like People aren't, let's face it, people aren't taking his advice today. People aren't taking his lessons today. What are your thoughts on all of this? Well, if you look on the surface, it can be pretty discouraging uh, how people are misbehaving and how much we are not caring for one another and feeling empathy. It's a profoundly selfish attitude in our society on many levels. Um, I think if Fred were here, he would say, we need childcare for children. They must be taken care of. They must be taken care of. We have no future if we're not gonna take care of our children. And I feel this very deeply. That's the first thing. The second thing is we need to educate our women. Our girls need to have the same advantages that the guys have because very often they're the ones who have the child or children and they're the ones who have to take care of them. We need, just out of a sense of caring, we must care for women and educate women. And I personally think that we need to teach men, help to teach men to deal with their emotional side, their loving, caring, gentle side. I feel that Fred Rogers was just the cutting edge of a gentilization of humankind. He's one example, there are others. But there are many great men and women, Mother Teresa and, uh, frankly, Michelle Obama, who are tough, but they're kind. They are very, very, very loving and very kind. And I think about Dr. King and uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, Fred Rogers. They all fit into that category of strength, deep, deep, not just physical strength, but spiritual. There's something else inside of us that wants to... Uh, uh, to to spread its wings, to blossom in mankind now. And so I also think in addition to kindness and empathy, we must go back and deal with the issue of slavery in this country. Now, we know that slavery is wrong. Everywhere in the world, if it appears, shows its ugly head, it's wrong. 
But there was a time we didn't. And we have to acknowledge that the white society did something very painful and abusive. And one of the things Fred taught me is that stuff you learn when you're two, three, four, five years old, you carry all your life. So you have a race of people brought here in chains and then raised here to be secondary, third, third dairy citizens who are not allowed to marry. You could, you know, you can't learn to read or write. Uh, you can't travel. Traveling is one of the greatest things I think you can do. So you think about those kinds of things and you say, what kind of damage did we do to the psyche of black people? In the same way, because there's always two sides to a coin, white people were very, very damaged because they were not allowed to express the love and the care that they felt. And, uh, you know, there's these stories that people tell about relationships between white men and black women. That, that should, those should not be stories because you have one human being relating to another human being. As long as it's mature and adults and they're able to say yes, they should be able to relate. I also feel that is true for homosexuality. Nobody is trying to make somebody gay or make somebody autistic or make somebody uh, having to, you know, uh, blind or deaf. But these are conditions we are born with. And we have to learn how to be empathetic and caring and loving towards one another. I, I, I think you could just start with that one thing. Fred said, be kind, be kind, be kind. And I say that to myself. Are you being kind? Because <laughs> I have a personality and I can cut sharp. And I, 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 I don't say that, Francois. Don't, don't say that. That is not going to make that person feel better. It's not going to help. And I learned to listen from my relationship with Fred Rogers. And uh, I'll be honest with you. I'd be lying and I'd be stupid if I didn't tell you. I was born with a special mission. And that mission is to give love in this world. I was, it's not an accident that I am one of the ones who was brought in the inner circle with Mr. Rogers. Fred Rogers has a big mission in this world. I mean, he's one of the lanterns of the cosmos and I was blessed to be there. That is not an accident. No, not at all. You mm. were born for the role of Officer Clemens. And to think when you when he first told you about it, you kind of like, you, you you admitted it, you questioned it. You're like, what, you want me to do what now? And then- well, it, was but, very, it, it was very hard to believe. Mm -hmm. And you also have to realize, I was thinking physically mm -hmm. of me as a physical person who had not been taught to love myself or to look beneath the surface to the spiritual Francois. And so I was looking on, on the surface and there are so many things in the society telling me that, Black is bad, gay is bad, you know, and uneducated is bad. Not that it was just different and that we are addressing ourselves to some of these issues, but Fred was the one who said, don't look on the outside, France. Look on the inside. And that, that brings up a follow-up question that I had. When you, when you like said, like, hey, when you're thinking about like judging someone, you're thinking about like, you know, I'm going to let this guy have it. I'm going to da, 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 da. Do you often just stop and think what would Fred do? Or like, 
is that your driving force to really say like, you know, hey, don't do this. Like, do you want, how many times have you found yourself saying like, what would Fred do or would Fred do that? Would Fred say that? Well, that's a very interesting question, I think, because I spent a great, great deal of time with him. And I spent a lot of time reading about him and watching television. I watched him, this, uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And so some things I've absorbed, and they don't feel like Fred anymore. They feel like Francois Clemens. But what I also realized is that, as I said to you, there was no accident that mm -hmm. I was uh, thrown into that circumstance. And I feel that I already had many of the fine qualities, but I have been told so long that black was not positive or black was not strong or black was not intelligent or whatever, not pretty, not beautiful. And so when Fred helped me pull those levers of lies off of me, I too recognized that I had many of the same qualities that Fred had. Fred had a lot of the same qualities that my grandfather had. He had a lot of the same qualities that his grandfather had. This idea of unconditional love and unconditional trust and unconditional giving is not, you know, unique to Fred Rogers. But he had the, it's like the light switch that, you know, that turns on. He had that ability to turn that on and he helped people to stop and look inside. I do the same thing. I do it in my own way. I'll never do it the way Fred did it because I'm Francois Clemens. But you also have to realize I'm 77 years old. Fred was dead at 74. Mm. I don't ask myself, what would Mr. Rogers do? No, he gave us like a, a flight plan. He gave us a map. We can read that map. Ah, this is what I should be doing. Ah, mm. And I've written, as I say, Officer Clemens, and writing another book. I have ideas which I think of myself as carrying on that legacy, but it's not unique just to Fred. I mean, look at Dr. King and, and, uh, and uh, South Africa, Mandela. They were all men of peace, Gandhi, great, great men of peace. So and I, I'm not putting myself in that category. I'm just simply saying these ideas are there if we're willing to read and to accept them. Fred had a very, very special audience, I think. And I think that he did a damn good job. If he's sitting up in heaven, he got one great big one. But mm -hmm. in, for example, in my case, uh, I say 50% of my uh, fan mail and communication comes from gay people who want to know, am I loved? Am I lovable as I am? Can I be myself if I'm a trans? Fred never had to deal with trans. He never dealt openly like I do with homosexuality. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I, I can't say what would Mr. Rogers do. I have to say this is 2022. And let's get on with it. We our work is not finished. No. Nope. And so, uh, we uh, if we have someone on the show who's from India, or from Japan, or China, they're just as wonderful. I was very very lucky to have the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble from 1980 on for at least 20 years, and we travel all over the world singing. Many times people have said to me, "Oh, are you the man on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood?" Yes. But there are other times they said, we love what you're doing. 
your American Negro spirituals, you offer something that's so special. And we're very grateful that you're here. We're glad that you came. So I think that that life and that experience gives me another, uh, adds to the depth of who I am. And the fact that what I did, for example, going to Spain or going to Italy and on to uh, Egypt and Morocco and all those tremendous, all over South America, singing and seeing people and having having a deep understanding. We're the same all over the world. No matter where you go, you'll find good people and you'll find people that are not living up to, uh, you know, the way we should. And they have to know that they can be loved. You, you bring them in. Um, I used to have lots of correspondence as I toured around the world. And it's, uh, this pandemic put a stem on a lot of, we couldn't uh, do some things that we used to be able to do. And I want, I'm glad I'm having a chance to talk to you because one of the most difficult things we had to deal with during this pandemic is that we were not allowed to touch and to hug. And because we couldn't touch and hug, we also could not smell one another. And I mean that in the very, very most positive way. I often think of a mother holding a baby in her arms and how that baby, she suckles the baby, if you know she, if she's doing that. And the baby, not only does she rub the baby, but the baby can smell mama or baby can smell daddy. So that as a culture, as a society, we're screaming to get back to, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are we going to do? You can't hug. And that's why people are so eager to come out from these <laughs> retreats. You know, you're restricted to stay home. And you know that that's the safest thing to do. But what do you do about hugging and kissing and rubbing and smelling? <laughs> They're basics. Mm -hmm. But that's who we are as a human species. You see all kinds of animals you know, playing and touching and what have you. It's a human need. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so I really feel, uh, I hope we are coming back from that punishment or whatever it is, this, uh, this virus that mm -hmm. we can't see, but that kills people. It's so, it was so difficult to cut ourselves off and to be sanit. We have to sanitize, wash our hands, wash our face and, cover uh, you know i'm not not very far from a, a mask all the time and not because i want to be but because i want to be healthy and i knock mm -hmm. on wood that i never had any um uh, infection i got my shots and then i got a booster and i got a second booster and if this fall they have another one i'll get another booster because i as i said i'm 77 i feel vulnerable and i don't want to not be able to do what i do singing and traveling so I think that uh, your question was, what would Mr. Rogers do? And I think that it's, it's time to write another book. What, what would we do? You know, oh, there's, well. a lot of, there's a lot of responsibility when you are awake, when we understand, like your podcast, your buddy cast, is very, very important communication. Very yes. important. But we also need to, uh, to somehow find a way to spend time together. Yes. And you know what? You mentioned the pandemic. BuddyCast was born during the pandemic. I see the background of this pandemic, what it has caused for people, the negativity, the anger, the division that it caused. And I said, you know what? 
enough is enough. It's time to hear some feel-good stories. It's time to just hear from people like Dr. Clemens, <laughs> all his history, hear from the local piano teacher, why she wakes up every morning and does what she does. To And two years ago, if you were to tell me on this day in two years, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Clemens, also known as Officer Clemens from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yes. I don't know if I would have believed you. I would have been like, you know, that's how big this show has gotten. And the one thing I wanted to touch on, you and me talked a little bit off air, you know, about the relationship with our grandfathers. Buddy Cast was born, it takes a lot after my grandfather, my mother's mm-hmm. father, who gave me the name Buddy. He, I was his buddy. I was, yes. you know, I was his buddy. I was, his, I was, you know, every time you call him on the phone, hey, buddy, how's it going? Anytime you saw him in public, hey, guys, come here. I want you to meet my buddy, you know? Yeah, I think that's very special. And because of what you're sharing with me, I wrote mm-hmm. some stories called Little Buttercup and the Magic Cane. And um, I know you're in touch with uh, Elizabeth Copps. She's my mm-hmm. literary agent. So ask Elizabeth to send you a copy of some of that. Uh, because I will. it's about my grandfather on my mother's side also, and uh, the kindness and the love that he gave to me that I never forgot. And um, in this book, one of the things that, that's the second book that I'm writing now, what I talk about is how uh, international c- color, there's no such thing as bad or better. Life is life. And my my grandfather gave me the same kind of love you're describing the same kind of love that Fred said his grandfather gave to him. And so the role of grandfathers, the extended family, is partly what I'm uh, uh, I'm, I'm out campaigning for because mm-hmm. when, when, uh, when we went into the pandemic, many grandparents couldn't see their grandchildren. No. And not just the grandparents suffer, but the grandchildren suffer. Mm-hmm. And we have found creative ways like this. I think a lot of communication has gone on on Zooms and, and uh, other uh, uh, resources on our, uh, on our uh, computers and telephones, uh, pictures. And we, we do a lot. We have, uh, we've learned to survive, but we're still not back to ourselves. No. And part of ourselves are the things that I name, forgive me for being repetitious, but it's important that we touch, that we rub one another, that we kiss one another, that we smell one another and we hold, you know, there's nothing quite like a good hug. Yeah. It's healing. Mm-hmm. It's healing. And Fred was a great hugger. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I think that m- humankind, humankind is learning how to care for one another. And there are lessons that we learned during this pandemic. We also learned about limitations, and I hope now that we'll be given a second chance that people will be careful when they have to be careful and take the time to show deep love, serious caring, not this superficial stuff, mm-hmm. because that's who we are. We, we are deep people trying to find ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that leads me a little bit into my next question, which is, Brought to us by my buddy, Jonas Kane, who runs a site called Hashtag Positivity. He wants to know, in your own words, 
what does it mean to be someone's buddy? <laughs> well, it means we can chat, talk like this. I think that's pretty important. You don't always want to have heavy conversations when you call someone up. Uh, what it means to be a buddy. I have a buddy here. Uh, I'm black and she's a white woman. But I consider her a really wonderful buddy. And she calls me and I call her and we talk about everything. And uh, I don't think color is, is a negative issue. I'm aware that she's a white woman. I'm sure she's aware that I'm a black man. But what we shared, like buddies, stories and ups and downs and around, I listen to her. and I know she listens to me. So I think that's a buddy listening, showing that you care, and, and not, um, not weighing the value. I gave you more than you gave me. I never think about that. My best buddy lives down in uh, uh, Durham, North Carolina. And I went down uh, about a month ago to see him and spend time. I was trying to get away from here. And it was the best thing in the world, as you talk about a buddy, to spend time to talk, to cook, to go for a walk, to go for a ride. See, uh, he was showing me uh, as a tourist around a sightseeing. And there were just so many common, plain things that we were able to do together that's very, very important. When you, you know, to do with your buddies. Um, I, I have lots of buddies here in Vermont also where I've lived for 20 years plus, 20 plus. And I don't ski. I don't like hockey. I don't go mountain climbing and all of those outdoor things that people do. But we find many, many, many things that we have in common. And I like to, we, we talk about that, you know, because Vermont is a state known for skiing and for ice hockey and outdoors. And why in the world am I here? Well, the reason I'm here is because uh, I'm stretching them and they're stretching me. But also I taught for 20 plus years at the Middlebury College, a wonderful, wonderful college here. And I taught, I was the artist in residence, so I was singing and I taught music. And I also uh, infused a lot of that with history, with black American history, because the school is about 95% white. And a lot of the kids come here, they don't have a good grounding in American history that includes black people. So uh, I feel that's one of the reasons I'm here. I'm, I'm serving my own way. And um, I also have introduced, I had a choir, the Martin Luther King Spiritual Choir. And I had a hundred people in that choir, Lord have mercy. I loved working with them for almost 20 years. And so uh, I was teaching them the style, the customs, and discussing with them how what happened during these years of slavery in a way that they can accept the truth. We must learn the truth. And there are all kinds of issues like that in our society that need to be discussed if we can present them the right way. Love it. Love that was one of the greatest answers we have ever heard of what it means to be someone's buddy. And now, Officer Clemens, we come to our final question, which is what we call the ultimate buddy cast buddy question. <laughs> what I'm going to break this, if you don't mind, I'm just going to break this into two parts. The first part is, what is your advice to anyone who wants to be a singer? Okay, that's the first part. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you know, uh, because of our biology and the way we're made, many times people don't discover that they're a singer until they're going through puberty. And then they, they have a deep voice or a high voice, or they discover that they have a color tour or something. So a lot of times, if a parent feels that their little girl or little boy has musical abilities, I suggest that they give them piano lessons. Learn to read music and to make it enjoyable, not something, a punishment, but make it an enjoyable experience so that indeed if they discover that they love singing and they really want to do it, you give them some tools that they can use. So, and then in America, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult, but the best thing you can do is help your child to learn different languages. Because if they turn out to be a, a, a classical singer, they'll want to speak some other language or use some other language tradition. If you are a pop artist or a Motown artist like that, you may not necessarily want this all this extra treatment and stuff. But it's not a bad thing. It's just that you don't use it as much. And then, of course, there's, um, there's jazz. That's a different kind of singing than I do. And so I really um, uh, urge people to study different languages and cultures so that you'll, you'll have a better understanding of our place in the world. And there are great things everywhere you go. There's something, <laughs> something wonderful and great people. So. Once you find out that you are a performer, you need to try and find a singer, a voice teacher, who can help you to learn songs that you want to learn or songs that you should learn. My voice teacher was very good at making suggestions, especially when I was 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. Uh, I mean, I, I, I needed those suggestions. And so if you decide to go on to college, they can help prepare you. If you're going to be a classical singer, if you're going to be a pop, maybe you want to go to a city where there's a lot of pop music, Memphis, Nashville, Atlanta, New York, of course. Uh, and you might want to pursue uh, a musical career. The thing that I, I would like to just add here for a minute, I have a couple of students who live here in Vermont. And you have to be honest, sometimes it seems brutal, but this is not a good place if you're a, a musician to make a, a, a fabulous living. It's usually you have to do something else and also sing or do something else and also play your guitar because the people don't want to pay what a living wage should be. And the reason I was been able have been able to stay here so long is that I was uh, hired by the college to perform. And then I had a very liberal president, uh, two of them, who allowed me to travel to do jobs in Chicago or Atlanta or indeed Vienna or Japan. If I wanted to go away, there was a lot, a lot of room to permit me to go away because uh, Vermont, that's one of the shortcomings. If you're an artist, you're gonna have to find something else to do to make a living. And there are people who are very happy with that. I know several people who are musicians and who uh, teach or they uh, do wood woodwork, carving or something. And they wanted to have children and they wanted to live in a community where they felt safe and they felt was quiet and low key and they could do their specialty and raise their children. So there are many different reasons that people wanted to be in a place like this. But I can tell you this. If you want to be a singer, want to be a musician, you need to go where they're where they are. You can get the training, the inspiration and be paid well.
Beautiful. And the final question that I have for you tonight is what is Officer Clemens' advice to the world today? Well, I'm not good at giving advice to the world, but I can tell you that my philosophy is one of empathy and service. The people, the older I get, the people whom I admire are the people who did the most to serve humanity, to serve humankind, giving of themselves. There's nothing like, Fred, the greatest gift he gave was to listen. I mean, when you had something you wanted to discuss, Fred found time. So I think the advice is to, for us to slow down and listen to one another. Uh, I think that we all have something to express. Well, we need to, uh, we need to have people who listen to us in a non-judgmental manner. A lot of frustrated people who have no one to talk to. I think that's that's one of the reasons they spend so much time online on these screens. We have the telephone, we have the laptop, we have the desktop, we have movie screens, all of these screens. And I think they're okay. There's, I'm not saying don't, but I'm saying close down the computer, turn off the telephone, and spend some time with a person or people. I love that. <laughs> Beyonce's giving you the thumbs up, giving you the absolutely. So, all right. Yes. Well, Dr. Clemens, thank you so, so much for being the buddy of honor here on Buddy Cast Day. It was a true honor. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with our buddies. I've learned a lot from you. I'm inspired by you. Thank <laughs> you from the bottom of my heart. I have, well, to, I have to thank some sponsors at the end of this episode and play our outro, but if you could just stay on for just one more minute or so, we'll talk I after. Sure can. Thank you, you for inviting me. You are welcome on this show anytime <laughs> because you know what, Officer or Dr. Clemens? You're not a guest on this show. You're a buddy. I'm now a buddy. Yay! <laughs> and you know what, buddy? I have one favor to ask you before we close off this show. Whatever you do today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, just do me one solid favor. Go be someone's buddy today. That's the motto of BuddyCast. Go be someone's buddy. That's not a problem. All right, Haiti. Thank you so much, buddy. For all my buddies out there, this is my new buddy, Dr. Clemens. <laughs> thank you again. For being on right. Thank you for helping us celebrate our two-year anniversary. It's a true blessing. Thank you to all my buddies out there, to our sponsors, to all our viewers. And as I always end up, you know what to do. Go be someone's buddy. We'll catch you all next time here on everybody's favorite show, BuddyCast. BuddyCast Day was made possible by the following sponsors.